Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Pony Express, the Post Rider's flagship podcast. As always, I'm your host, Post Rider editor in chief Mike Levito, and I am joined in this episode by Post Rider contributor Lewis Ryan. Avast, you swabbies. It's me, Lewis Ryan, when we're going to storm. Ooh, the 538 flagship today. Yar! <laughs> I didn't realize we were declaring war on 538, but uh, hey, man, let's do it. And when we're done with them, we'll go for, for split ticket and for, for uh, cook political report. And um, what's the other one that I'm thinking of? Real clear politics. We'll, we'll become king of the election projection pirates. <laughs> It'll be a new golden age of internet piracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they said we wouldn't download a car. That didn't mean we couldn't, and so we did. Um, that was a weird joke. Anyway, um, we are here. Uh, Speaking of weird jokes. Right. Um, so as you guys, I think actually made the last episode of Pony Express, we haven't done an episode in a while, we were talking about Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest TV Shows of All Time list. And we, we do this thing every once in a while when a list like that comes out, we like to talk about it and, and kind of give our thoughts on it because um, it's fun to do. You know, it's fun to talk about culture that way. It's really how I think in many ways, like internet sort of, I think culture discussion was born, right? Um, and there's actually a long tradition of it. And we're going to, I think, talk about kind of like one of the most, um, I would say... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Prestigious. Yeah, yes, prestigious of those kinds of lists, uh, specifically the sight and sound uh, critics poll. Um, Lewis, do, do you do you want to uh, explain what sight and sound is? Yeah, so sight and sound is like a film magazine. Um, it's been around since the early '50s, I want to say, and so every every ten years, starting in 1952, they they do a, a ballot where everyone ranks. Um, you know, writes what movies they want included on the list of like the hundred greatest films of all time, and um, in the so like the it's usually they concentrate on like the top ten is what they say. The top ten films are considered the greatest of all time. So, um, in the first version of the list in 1952, it was um, Ozu's Tokyo Story, um, and then in 1962, uh, the number one spot was claimed by Orson Welles's Citizen Kane. And it actually remained on the number one spot for four four decades until 2012, 10 years ago, when uh, Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock actually took the top spot. So it was actually, that was a big sort of moment. It wasn't, it was, you know, kind of a groundbreaking moment. It's because, uh, unfortunately, we're living in a Chinese proverb right now in our current reality where we always are living in interesting times. Nothing can be taken for granted as like, oh, this is, you know, the way it's always going to be, the traditional route. We have to change everything up. Disruption is the name of the game in the 21st century. Um, and now 2022, we have a new version of the list. And now, you know, now there's even more changes, um, So which, which we're going to talk about today. So the Sight and Sound, it's generally viewed as a sort of a conservative, traditional list of the 100 greatest films of all time. There wasn't really a whole lot of seismic changes from decade to decade um until you could say either the this version or the 2012 version so that's what we're going to talk about today yeah it's it's um yes like you said i think very conservative traditional very um i don't want to say elitist but you know they're they're not 
So we first started talking about you and I talking about this list because you know, they, they made the announcement that the list was going to come out and you, and you messaged me saying, um, if there's a Marvel movie on this list, I'm going to kill myself. I think were your exact words. Um, spoiler alert, there are no Marvel movies on this list. But, you know, it, Phew. <laughs> dodged a bullet there. Woo. It's a very like, you know, I think of this as like a very it's, it's kind of like a, like a scholarly list in a way, you know. We're, we're diving deep into the worlds of, like, Soviet cinema and Italian cinema and things like that. This is not, like, the IMDb list, right, where it's people voting and, and something like Shawshank Redemption, which is a great movie, ends up at number one. Yeah, and it's different than, like, the AFI Top 100 list because this mm-hmm. is more spread out to the world. And there's a long association with the British Film Institute, which has a lot more of a sort of worldly vibe and includes a lot more experimental films and I think, the uh, American in-film in American Film Institute traditionally. Right. So you mentioned, you know, obviously there were there was some shakeups on those lists. So I, so I believe one of the big ones is they did expand the field and just who was able to submit, you know, critics submit a top 10 list. Um, and so that obviously, by expanding the voter base, you're expanding, you know, what kinds of people vote for it and then kind of what movies get on there as well. And I think what, what the biggest takeaway is kind of like the biggest discussions and sometimes arguments I saw were that there were lots of like, not lots, there were like four, at least four, very recent movies that were on the list. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Get Out, Jordan Peele's Get Out, which was tied at number 95. You had Parasite, which was tied at number 90. Moonlight tied for number 60. And perhaps most controversial, uh, the film Portrait of a Lady on Fire made it all the way to the number 30 spot. Um... Do you have any thoughts, Lewis, about about this, this kind of trend? Uh, I mean, you know, this list comes out every decade. Mm-hmm. So I would assume it's it'd be good. I mean, I think it'd be bad if there were no films from the last decade on the list because then it's like, wow, no one was making anything good <laughs> or worthwhile the last 10 years. But, you know, that's not surprising sometimes. Like I said, this... This list sometimes feels very traditional, mainly in the way that the top 10 has kind of remained unchanged. Um, I don't know. I mean, those were all good films, I want to say. It, you know, I, I do think it's just, at a certain point, it's like, I think people already know about Get Out, right? It was fairly popular. So it is, I mean, including it on the very last spot. I guess makes sense. But, you know, I mean, I think people are really aware of that movie. And, you know, 10 years from now, assuming it's lost to time and it's not on the list, um, what, what does that mean? I mean, it's like, it's on the list, but you, what I'm saying is like, you know, people have already seen it already. Right. So it, what is it really serving by including it on the list? Yeah, I, I think that's a big thing is whenever I look at these lists... You know, I always think of them as like a tool for discovery. Um, and it does feel like something as loud. Like I, I think of kind of like the more, and I, I hate to bring up this phrase because it, it's done to death, but like the optimistic term that Pitchfork has taken in recent years where, you know, they've had like multiple lists of greatest songs of the 90s. And when they first did it, I think in, I think 2010 was really the first time they did it. Uh, the number one song was, was Gold Sounds by Pavement, which, I mean, if, if you're... Someone who, like, follows music closely is not very obscure, but if you're someone who's, like, looking to get interested into music, this is probably not a song you've heard before. You know, Pavement were, 
sort of like had a cult following. They had like one, not fluke hit, but they really had one like breakthrough hit and it wasn't Gold Sounds. And then they released another 90s list this year and the number one song was Fantasy by Mariah Carey. And it's like, Fantasy is a great song. I'm not going to deny that. But like in, in, insisting that this wildly popular song from like this wildly popular vocalist is number one, like you're not really making a statement there is kind of how I felt about it. Yeah. Um, and, and just for reference too, so I, I looked at the 2012 list. Um, there were only two movies from the 21st century on the 2012 list. Um, what were they? They were at number 28, Mulholland Drive. And at number 24, In the Mood for Love. Okay. Um, so that's actually, it's funny because that's actually higher than 30. Um, but yeah, so I, it's like an interesting frame of reference where, you know, those movies, and I, those movies where I think, um, I mean, compared to like, like Get Out was like, it's, it's like a popular movie, right? Um, In the Mood for Love and Mulholland Drive, I think we're, we're, we're considered a little more art house, so give it a little bit of a difference there. Um, but yeah, just, just like an interesting point of comparison. Um, yeah, these th- those are like good movies, the ones we were talking about. But, you know, I, I, I would understand why somebody would think Portrait of Lady on Fire is like, it's not quite the 30th best movie of all time yet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't really say because I haven't seen it, but, I you know. Yeah, I it, it's, it's certainly a good movie. I've seen it. Um, but it's also one of those, yeah, it, it's, it's, do I, it's, um, what's his name? Paul Schrader had some very controversial comments about the list <laughs> and some of the movies that were included. Um, he called Controversial, it, but right. <laughs> um, he called it like a woke something. No, that's not what he said. Didn't he? No, he said that, you know, that this, I mean, you can interpret it however you want, but I mean, he said like, um, including Jean Dielman in like the number one spot. It's all going to just, you know, attract controversy on this movie mm-hmm. and then won't really lead to any meaningful discussion of anything. And it just delegitimizes that this whole list and sight and sound, which, you know, he, he's free to express his opinion. Yeah. I mean, he also kind of like accused the vote of being rigged. Yeah. Um, no, he, he did say that um, Jean Dielman from, will from this time forward be remembered not only an important film in cinema history, but also a landmark of distorted woke reappraisal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but like reading this too, it's like, he's not saying that it's undeserving so much as he is saying that like the perception is that it, it, it got where it was because of it's kind of like, I guess, political or ideological sympathies. Um, which again, I, I think you're right. He's not entirely wrong there, but um, you know, maybe he didn't perhaps phrase it uh, as delicately as he should have. Anyway, um, well, we've already spoiled the top spot, so let's let's talk about the top ten and give our thoughts on it. I think you might have a little more to, bit more to add than I do because I've actually only seen three of these movies in the top ten, um, and I have seen number ten, which is I would say probably considered by many like the greatest film musical ever made, "Singing in the Rain," directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donen from 1951. Lewis, your thoughts on "Singing in the Rain"? Oh, Citizen K. Did you say Citizen Kane or Singing in no, the Rain? No, Singing in the Rain. <laughs> Singing in the Rain uh, is a great movie musical. Some would say the greatest movie musical of all time, directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Tone in <laughs> 1951. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I've seen it multiple times in the theater. Actually, I saw a revival screening, I think, in like the, is it the 50th? Maybe the 60th anniversary, 2012. Um, yeah, so I, I saw that actually in the theater that summer, and then I saw it again when I went to college in film class. So I saw it twice in the same year in kind of a theater setting. Um, yeah, it's a great movie. Not a a lot of people might realize that it's actually like a jukebox musical based around uh, an archive of songs in the Warner Brothers music library, but it all uh, hangs and flows together very well. It's based on, you know, it's set in the 1920s at the advent of sound film. So, you know, there's a great story. You learn a lot about film history. There are some people out there that consider this movie science fiction. Hmm. Because it's about like a new technology and people being forced to adapt to it, and to what that I say, it is not. <laughs> this was real. Yeah, it's a real, real this science. It's part of history. It's historical <laughs> fiction. It's like is 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 like the the tall tale of John Henry science fiction too, because he's fighting a steam engine. Like, um, I I I I saw this in the theaters actually for its seventieth anniversary this year. Um, yeah, this is a movie that's like very, I, I, I've seen this probably like a dozen times. Um, my mother's a huge Gene Kelly fan. So this movie was on all the time when I was younger. Um, just wonder like a beautiful movie, very colorful, uh, Gene Kelly best to ever do it when it comes to dancing. Um, is it Donald O'Connor? Very funny. Gene Hagen. Very funny. Um, Debbie Reynolds. Also great. Uh, just can't 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 say anything bad about this movie except for like the whole gotta dance sequence, which is kind of um, goes on way too long. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, like turn off this podcast and go watch it, please. Um, so the next uh, movie on this list, which is one I think, according to your letterbox, you've watched recently, is Man with a Movie Camera, directed by Ziga Vertov. This is a Soviet film from 1929. I don't know anything about this movie, Lewis. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so I actually watched this, not because it was on the list, just because I wanted to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a film. It is a kind of quote-unquote documentary. It is about a man with the movie camera, oddly <laughs> enough. Um, but no, it's a... as the uh, Interstitial, interstitials say at the beginning this is a sort of non-narrative experiment devoid of language which is basically mean it's like it's all visuals so it was it's a silent film it's all visuals there are no interstitials once the film itself gets started um, apart from what i was just talking about at the very beginning and basically it's the director's film like exploring moscow in like that time period, the late 20s, you know, it's originally a silent film. You can watch it now with like, you know, uh, newly recorded orchestrations based on like the recommended orchestrations from the director at the time. Uh, but it was like a silent film is like an experimental film um, that it, it's, uh, <laughs> it's basically just going around. And so it's like the director is like filming life in Moscow and Russia at that time. And then it's like we'll get shots of another camera filming the director filming something. And it's basically just like a montage, you know, mm-hmm. Soviet film montage. 
If anyone is familiar with any film history, you might be aware of Sergei Eisenstein and Battleship Potemkin and the idea of Soviet montage. This film, like, blasts that into a whole other direction. This film is basically, like, I want to say, like, maybe 30 or 40 years ahead of time in terms of its editing. There's a couple, like, innovative shots where um, it's kind of like a split screen of, like, like the city of Moscow on the bottom half of the frame and then, like, the direct and the camera like made to look giant like observing the city of moscow and it's basically like the average shot length i want to say is like 1.7 seconds which is extremely you know you think of like old films from the 30s and i'm sure you can imagine like they just hold on like wide shots of like three characters talking you know what i mean and they just go on Mm -hmm. so like consider that the average shot length is 1.7 seconds in this movie so in terms of like the editing and composition and technical ability, this film is very highly advanced for its time period. Um, it's going to be almost 100 years old in a couple of years. Um, so I appreciated like the technical side, and I do think it's kind of like a landmark movie. I did find it a little lacking because, as I said, there's not really a narrative so much. It's kind of a pro-Soviet movie. Mm. It might be, I mean, I guess the Soviets were there, but you know, like I'm saying, it's the late 20s, so right. they're just getting off the ground. So, you know, as someone who's raised in America, I'm not really <laughs> sure what I'm supposed to think. You can honestly, like, watch the movie and, like, not think of, you know, anything. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, the movie has no interstitials. It doesn't even really say, like, Moscow, Russia, or anything. It just, like, it starts. And if you had no idea, like, there's, like, some Cyrillic signs you can like see in the background but it's not really like a focus so you could just watch this movie and like like oh this is canada this is europe this is this australia i guess if it snowed um so there's not really like a narrative if you don't know what's going on you might not really like think too much while you're watching the movie um and so in that respect i found it a little lacking in terms of like no story there have been other films since then that have approached this kind of experimental subject matter like uh godfrey reggio's koyani scotsi is very similar in the way it's just very visual and has like the philip class score underneath it um you could say argue like like planet earth i guess like even though that has david attenborough narrating that that's sort of similar to this so like i said i thought this film was like 30 or 40 years ahead of time which brings it only up to like 1968 <laughs> And right now it's uh, 2022. Right. So, you know, it's it's like uh, over 50 years behind now. <laughs> so if you like go by that over under. So I highly recommend watching it or even, you know, if you want to go on YouTube and watch maybe like 10 minutes of it just to see if you maybe want to watch the whole thing. Because I think you can probably get, um, you know, you can understand what the movie is just watching any 10 minute chunk of it. But um, it's good. I'm not certainly not going to dispute its placement high up on the list it's certainly a canonical film so it's worthy of inclusion on this list yeah um sounds interesting um i i i I tend to have a tough time with silent films just because um you know like they have to like put in like new music for a lot of them and i i find the new music is oftentimes not very good um that's actually when i was watching this the orchestration um, cause I was watching it with my brother mm-hmm. who has this movie in his collection. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, 
orchestration they used, it was very, um, it was like meant for an orchestra, but it was like very synthesized. Yeah. Like they were using a synthesizer and I found it very distracting or no, very kind of uncomfortable in like the first 10 minutes, but then it gets going. So like, that's the thing. I would have rather just kind of watched it with the sound off, pushed mute on the mute button. Um, sometimes for, for some people that that's difficult, so I can understand, but sometimes, you know, um, it's better maybe to watch and just appreciate the visuals. Cause this was, people don't realize that I guess silent films were like truly silent. You were supposed to watch them. Well, not in complete silence. Cause they usually had someone doing some music, but like these were films that had like absolutely no sound. So, um, you're right on that score, Mike. Yeah. Um, if you can rent like an organ player to just come to your house, that'd be cool when you watch a silent movie. Just but... um, have uh, Marvin Hamlish's The Entertainer right, from, yeah. from The Sting. Just put that on repeat and just have that going for 90 minutes. <laughs> well, while you're watching a movie about like Soviet Russia, um, that'd be appropriate. Um, yeah, so that's that's Man of Movie Camera. Um, number eight is a movie I have watched. Uh, Mulholland Drive. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive from 2001. Um I, I, you know, it's, I feel like a little tough to describe this movie because it has like, like, like a lot of David Lynch movies, it has kind of like a dreamlike logic to it. Um, there are some kind of like noirish, I would say overtones. It is ostensibly about an actress trying to hack it in Hollywood. Um, and of course there's, there's some nasty people involved in Hollywood and, and she, she sees some weird things and meets this very odd woman and it kind of, her, her life take some interesting turns i guess you could say <laughs> yeah a woman in trouble yes yes um like so many of david lynch and david lynch's movies are about but i i think i think a great movie really fascinating um if if you're down to kind of follow that 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 um crazy logic i mean it has i think one of the i would say like the the scene behind the Winkies is like maybe one of the scariest movie scenes just because it is pure like anticipation and tension. And then there's a payoff and like in a vacuum, maybe it's a little silly, but like when it happens, I mean, it's, it's kind of terrifying. Yeah. It's like right in the first 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. I want to say it just happens. And then it's like, Oh, it's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, any other thoughts about Mulholland drive? Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great movie. Um, I will say that it, on a certain level, I think it's one of Lynch's more, I don't know if conventional is the right word, but between Lost Highway and Inland Empire, it's definitely one of his more comprehensible movies, mm -hmm. if you've never seen much David Lynch work before. Um, highly enjoyable. A lot of the dream stuff, I want to say, doesn't come in until like the second half. Before that, it's definitely following like a mosaic of different characters that can like maybe be a bit confusing if you're used to a film that's just sticks to a straightforward like run along the track sort of narrative and uh it is kind of interesting that this is a a film that started out as a quote-unquote failed tv pilot for abc that lynch like had many disagreements with abc about and then he ended up turn getting enough money to turn make a second half and now this film is considered the ninth greatest film of all or eighth greatest film of all time it's just really funny to me and i also want to point out that like uh famous film critic roger ebert who's a man i i respect very much when it comes to matters of film uh famously did not care for david lynch's movies at all 
gave Blue Velvet like a a hate hatred, like I hated watching this movie, mm-hmm. and like proceeded to not like any of Lynch's movies really after that. And then Mulholland Drive comes out, and it's like the one film where Roger Ebert's like, you know what? This is a great film. <laughs> I applaud you, David Lynch. You know, it's like for like the last five movies, I didn't really care for any of them, but now you finally made something that works for me. And I was actually watching not too long ago a clip on uh, YouTube of Roger Ebert at the Academy Awards. Like, he's interviewing people on the red carpet, and, like, David Lynch comes up. And it's, like, Roger Ebert, like, shares those sentiments about how it's such a great film. And, like, David Lynch has, like, been aware that Roger Ebert didn't like any of his movies. So it's, like, but, you know, David Lynch is happy. He finally made one that, like, Roger Ebert likes. I just think it's, like, a happy... That's a happy little story. And I I do think Mulholland Drive is a good movie. Well worth your time if you're interested. Yeah. My, my other favorite fact about Mulholland Drive is that it was nominated for exactly one Academy Award, and that award was Best Director. <laughs> um, I just, it's how, like, you, you think of the kind of, like, you know, we talk about, like, a conservative list, kind of the, I would say, like, risk-averse members of, of, you know, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences being like, you know what, David, we don't really get you that much, but we can't deny this movie. You'll get at least one nomination, and it'll be for you exactly. Um all right, number seven is a movie I've certainly not watched and I maybe heard of, but, but didn't know much about before this list, is uh, Beau Travail, directed by Claire Denis from 1998. Uh, have you seen this movie, Lewis? <laughs> I have seen exactly zero frames of this movie. <laughs> okay, uh, my understanding is that it is about um, uh, members of the French Foreign Legion training in Djibouti. Um, I know, I, I have you ever seen a Claire Denis movie? Nope, I don't think so. <laughs> Neither have I. I know. The The impression I get is that... Um, she? She, yeah. The impression that I get is that her movies, the reception of them kind of remind me of like Terrence Malick in the sense that I don't think... Oh, they wait. Make... Oh, no. I thought I've seen Chocolat, but that's a different Chocolat. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, in the sense, I don't think they necessarily make similar movies, but it seems like she makes a lot of movies... And they're either, like, considered the best movie of the year or people think they're, like, unwatchable. Um, so, yeah, Beau Travail, I, I can't tell you not to watch it. I'm sure it's great. Um, <laughs> who, did, who did you say she was like? Like, the reception to her films reminds me of the way people treat Terrence Malick. Oh, yes. Where it's, like, either it's like, oh, my God, this is, like, has reinvented cinema or it's, like, this is unwatchable drivel. Um it just seems like there's like a bit because she released a movie this year that people were just like this is like some people thought was genius and some people thought was just like not good at all mm-hmm. um so i don't know um we'll, we'll have to take the sight and sound crit- poll yeah the critics poll uh have to take their word for this one um another movie that i haven't seen well i i oh. did want to say that it's uh according to wikipedia it says it's based on uh, billy bud oh herman melville novella which yes. I know of from the the Sopranos. <laughs> yes, I. I when I, Carmela's like, it's just a, it's just a story about two sailors. <laughs> yes, because Billy Budd has these kind of like homoerotic overtones, um, as this Moby Dick. If I, I I've never read I haven't read either book, but I have read hint hint the title. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I have read Pauline Kael's uh, review of Billy Budd, where she basically says it's very homoerotic. So. I'll take her word for it. Um, so yeah, Beau Travail, Billy Bud, but in Djibouti. There you go. Um, number six. 
a movie I haven't seen, um, but I know you have. You haven't? I have not, believe it or not. I, I honestly, like, I'm, I'm kind of behind on my Kubrick movies. This is 2001 A Space Odyssey from 1968. Um, I know about you the podcast. You co-host a science fiction podcast <laughs> with me, and you have not seen a movie commonly cited as the greatest science fiction film of all time, 2001? I, I have not. I'll, I'll have to add it to the list, I guess. <laughs> <sighs> We should watch it on the podcast. <laughs> we should. No, I, I'd be down for that. My So the Kubrick movies I have seen, it's The Shining, and it's Doctor Strangelove and Lolita, which I feel like is just a weird, like Lolita's a weird throw in there because it's not like one of the more famous ones, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. See, it's an early Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen, I've seen Spartacus. I have seen Doctor Strangelove. I've seen... Barry Lyndon, I've seen The Shining, I've seen Full Metal Jacket. Oh, I've seen Full I've Metal Jacket too. Seen Eyes Wide Shut, and I've seen 2001. I've seen I've seen most, not most. I've seen parts of Eyes Wide Shut. Um, but as someone who has seen 2001, what, what, what can you what can you tell us about it? Well, so I a cup. Uh, so last year, I went to the uh, Museum of the Moving Image in Queens, in New York City. And there they have an exhibit set up, and I think it might still be there. Um, basically a whole wing dedicated to Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which he co-wrote with Arthur C. Clarke, famous science fiction author. And, um, yeah. And I left that exhibit, and I was thinking, you have a really hard time arguing that this is not the greatest film ever made. Because it's just so, like, complete. It's telling... This is different than like science fiction, typical science fiction. This isn't like some cheesy War of the Worlds ripoff where it's like aliens are invading. We got to fight the aliens with guns or whatever. Oh, and the aliens shoot down lasers that melt humans into blobs. This isn't that. 2001 tells the story of humanity from like the dawn of man where we learn to use tools. We invent tools to use them as weapons and then we smash cut to the year 2001 humanity is now traveling in space we have achieved almost everything we have um sentient ai and computers which in self are tools that can be used to kill us and then we go from there we find these strange artifacts from seemingly from aliens called the monoliths and then we follow them and then we go beyond the infinite and we achieve the next level of evolution we go beyond there and it's all beautifully shot, amazing special effects. This predates Star Wars by 10 years. Everything looks amazing. The soundtrack, composed of, you know, library classical music, has, has become iconic in its own right. It's hard to imagine any of that music in any other context, except in, like, a parody of this film. Um, so it's this really gripping science fiction story. Um, yeah, it's really well done. It's hard to argue that it's not the greatest film ever made because it's just like it's such a visual and auditory experience. It's not really about a conventional like plot where it's like we're following one character on this journey. It's about the story of humanity and it really makes us question like who we are, what are we doing in the universe and so on. Yeah, so- sounds good. I guess I guess I'll, I will have to watch it now. Um... And I also recommend uh, reading the book too. I read hmm. there's a... Uh, Famously, uh, so like Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick sort of worked on the movie together. 
and then or they worked on like the idea for the story and then Kubrick went off and like made the movie and then Clark went off and wrote the book so like they're very similar basically 99% but they're a bit different obviously you like you can watch the movie and you sort of can get lost in like what the story is about because the movie's kind of oblique but the book is very well written Arthur C. Clarke wrote actually three sequels to the book, 2010, which was turned into a movie later on, 2061, and then there was 3001, The Final Odyssey, and they're very well-written science fiction books, so I'd also highly recommend those to anyone interested. Yeah. Also high, highly recommend the Museum of the Moving Image, which I have also been to and is um, very cool to visit. Was the Jim Henson exhibit still there when you were there? Yeah, I was. it was there last year. The 2000 exhibit wasn't there? No, 2000 exhibit was. Um, yeah very interesting stuff Um, so obviously the next thing they should do is the muppets 2001 yes i hey man i i love i love the muppets that'd be a lot of fun i mean i mean isn't that just basically muppets from space (laughs) 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 um just just gonzo gonzo's gonzo's hall or whatever i don't know how anyway um so number five on this list is a movie directed by Wong Kar Wai, the great Hong Kong filmmaker. Another movie I haven't seen, I must admit, and it is one we mentioned earlier, one of the only 21st century uh, films on the 2012 list, In the Mood for Love. Yeah, it's just sneaking into the 21st century there. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, technically not even the 21st century, which technically started in 2001, but for like cultural purposes started in 2000. Yeah, I, I don't have any... I haven't seen this movie. I haven't seen any Wong Kar Wai movies. Um, and it's because I hate that hemisphere. <laughs> um, I don't know. I only know about it because... Well, I know about the movie. But I've only seen, like... I think Everything Everywhere All at Once. They have the sequence when it's, like, them in the alleyway. Mm-hmm. And, like, the frame rate drops. And that's supposed to be, like, an homage to this movie. That's really all I, like, know about it. And I've watched, like, one review of it, like, years ago. And that that's really it. I'm sure it's a great film. From what I hear, Wong Kar Wai is a good, great director. I know they were showing his movies at, like, the IFC Center not that long ago, when where we saw Inland yeah. Empire mm-hmm. on the big screen. So um, I'm sure it's good. Is yeah. it better than 2001? I'm going to say no. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't seen it, so I can't say. Yeah, I, I've also never seen a Wong Kar Wai movie, nor have I seen this movie. I have seen a Tony Lung movie, and I have seen a Maggie Chung movie, and I like both of them. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure this is a good movie. Um, very striking poster. Uh, number four is a movie I believe you have seen. Another one I have Yeah, not. it's one of my favorite films. You know, Tom Hanks, Tim Allen. <laughs> they uh, play the characters of Woody and Buzz Lightyear as they, you know, struggle to get along as they deal with the, you know, moving out of, their their house into a new house you know andy is their owner and they're like toys and there's mr potato head and rex and uh, ham is the piggy bank played by john ratzenberger of course you know i i just love film you know cinema is such a great art form and this i'm surprised that such a, a film like well i mean i'm surprised and not surprised because like a quality outfit like pixar mm-hmm. where they really push that you know story is king wally just got into the criterion collection and you know why not have like their first real feature toy story in uh in this list of the 100 greatest films of all time so thank you sight and sound for including toy story well i i have some news for you lewis um it's, it's tokyo story 
not Toy Story, that uh, that's on this list. Oh, oh right. Yeah. Oh, I thought that was a typo on your part when you gave me the list. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's not Toy Kyo Story. It's like an old-fashioned Brooklyn accent. No, it's it's not. Um, uh, Yas- Yasujiro Ozu, Japan, 1953. Um, I haven't seen this movie. um yeah so ozu you know one of the great japanese directors he was like such a such an interesting legacy of movies that he's left behind for us to discover um he's famous for sort of this like non-judgmental like uh straight on shots which is like sort of like you know how in japan there's like a culture of like kneeling Mm-hmm. when you're like sitting around the tea table so like you're on your knees so he like invented a way to like for the camera to be at that height just like straight on um i can't remember what it was like if it was like the kneeling shot or whatever but he made these these interesting movies a lot of them are like if you look at the titles they all sound like times of the year there's like early autumn late spring late winter or something like that my summer afternoon whatever and, uh, you know, there's this film, Tokyo Story, which commonly cited as one of his masterpieces, which is basically about, basically just a small family drama about, like, a daughter visiting her parents in Tokyo, and it's just, like, a charming little movie. Um, I saw this movie 10 years ago, when I was still in high school, I did, like, a project on it like analyzing a shot and like I wrote a paper and had to do like a presentation in class and I'm actually having a bit of trouble like remembering it fully but I know it is definitely a film about you know family um Ozu has like this very interesting like non-judgmental way of shooting as I've said and you know he's a great director I should really sample more of his movies um because they're, they're really interesting. You know, there are no Godzillas to be found in any of his mm-hmm. movies, which I know might be a turnoff for you, Mike. But um, I, I think he it, he's really interesting. There's just something, like, enigmatic about it. And the fact that he died um, relatively early, I want to say. I want to say he died in, like, 1963. He was, like, not that old. And there's just, like, like a mystery. There's just, like, something enigmatic about his movies. Yeah, he, he was only 60 when he died. Um, you know, this is from like 1953. This is only 10 years before he died. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to add. Um, have, have you seen Make Way for Tomorrow? I have not. That's that's a film people commonly cite as like an American version of uh, Tokyo Story, hmm. where it's like, um, I, I this is like about you know the father and mother, and they have to like split off to stay with each of their children and the the children don't live close to each other so it's like the parents are like splitting up out of like economic necessity mm-hmm. and so it's like the last time the mother and the father will actually like see each other because this is like back in like the 40s you know when it wasn't taken for granted that we could like see someone across the country you know right so it's like they have to say goodbye at like the train station so like that's an analog to like kind of the story tokyo story is about where you know they have to deal with uh kind of loss in small intimate family setting so that's the kind of emotions that ozu is playing with here in a in a more american film so if you want to check it out i recommend tokyo story uh, make way for tomorrow i hear is really good as well so so check either of those out yeah leo mccary people like him um 
Number three on the list, uh, a movie I have, of course, seen. Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles, 1941. Um, Citizen Kane, I feel like, is interesting because it's like you hear what it's about, and it's about, it's just kind of about the life of this guy. Not this guy, it's about, a new, you know, it's, it's a Romana clef about William Randolph first, the newspaper tycoon and would-be sort of president, basically. And it's a story about, you know, it opens with the famous Rosebud sequence where he dies, he says Rosebud, nobody knows what it means. And this reporter tries to find out about his life and, and talks to all these people. And it's told pretty much primarily in flashback, this film, um, about his childhood and his business career and all of that. Um, and so it sounds just kind of like a... I think just explaining what it's about, like maybe some people lose kind of what's so great about it, but like you watch it... And I, and I always hate to judge movies like this because it, it is a little condescending, but it's like this movie looking like it does in 1941 and being structured the way it is in 1941, like feels kind of like mind blowing. Like it's, it just feels like a very modern way to, to create a movie in a time when, you know, I mean, most movies still were not in color, right? It, it's just like a very, it feels way ahead of its time. And, and it's just like, you know, a, a timeless American story about like the rise and fall of a powerful man. Yeah, I agree. And what I think is so interesting about this film is that, you know, it's commonly held as like the greatest film of all time, constantly tops these lists. And I think there's like a certain association with people. And I think the Academy Awards have something to do with this, that it's like the best films are often like lofty or pretentious or like impenetrable, you know. And I think what's so great about Citizen Kane is that it's like a very watchable movie. Mm -hmm. It's funny when it wants to be. It's entertaining when it wants to be. You know, it can be scary or thrilling. Um, it's just like, it's just a really well remade. It's only 119 minutes long and it just flies by. And um, like you said, it uses like every camera trick in the book. It, didn't, it uses, you know, they had to dig holes into the studio in order to get the camera. They could do like low angle shots. It was the first major film to have like a ceiling. You could like see the ceiling in some of the shots because they, they used to just shoot movies straight on. There is special effects. You know, it's really like the Star Wars of its time. You know, you're not really... Everyone thinks you're a crazy person when you describe Citizen Kane that way, but it's, like, true. And it's just telling this really, you know, epic story about, like, a man, one man's rise and fall. There was a podcast I was listening to where someone was like, yeah, I watched Citizen Kane. I thought, like, the way it was shot was really cool, but, like, the thing I really didn't like about it was, like, the script. And it's like, how dare you? <laughs> it's like, the story is so good. The script is so good. It's infamously the only thing it won an Academy Award for was the script by Herman J. Mankiewicz and Orson Welles, asterisk. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, the way, the story, there's so much memorable dialogue in this movie. The part where Bernstein is talking about memory and like he only, he remembers being on the ferry ride in 1898 and he sees this woman in a dress with a hat. And it's like, you know, I remember that so crystal clearly and it's like, she probably wouldn't remember me. But it's like, that that scene is just so well-written about how, like, memory, about certain things stick in our brains. It really, you know, shows the whole thing. And just the way we learn so much about this character, Charles Foster Kane. But, like, every time I watch it, I feel like he's more and more of an enigma. Like, I feel like I know less and less about, like, who this guy is. Because it's like, we only are seeing his life through, like, fragments. And I, I could go on and on. People have done it. Roger Ebert did like three separate commentaries for <laughs> Citizen and Kane talking about it. And it's like, this movie can just be analyzed over and over again. So I think it's 
highly worth its place on the list. It's a very watchable movie. I would highly recommend it. It's a good time for two hours. What more could you want in a movie? Yeah, I agree. Um, if you're like me and you're a big White Stripes fan, Jack White actually references Citizen, Citizen Kane a couple times in his songs, uh, specifically the song The Union Forever, where he literally just is singing lines from the movie. Um, so, yeah. Um, and the Simp- Simpsons have like referenced like every scene of this movie <laughs> at some point, so check it out for that reason. There is a man, a certain man, I think is one of the ones they do, right? There uh, is a man, a certain man. Yeah. <laughs> a man whose face is known across the land. His name? It's Monty Burns. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is, like, um, talk about, like, things that feel ahead of their time. Like, Orson Welles is, as an actor, absolutely incredible. Um, not only in this movie, but also The Third Man. It's like, The Third Man's a great movie, but he, like, jumps off the screen in, like, the... He's probably in it for, like less than 15 total minutes maybe um that's maybe an exaggeration he's not in it for very long um but he's amazing when he's in it so yeah just yeah but in kane he's only 25 yeah that is obscene and he he plays so much older too (laughs) um it's crazy yeah all right number two on the list which has been number one or was number one last time in 2012 as we discussed, uh, Vertigo, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, 1958. So, Vertigo, another movie I really should have seen that I haven't seen. Um, in addition to loving Gene Kelly, my mother does love Alfred Hitchcock as well. The closest I ever came to seeing this movie was my sister and I got Fathom Events tickets to see it when we were living in D.C. And then there was a big snowstorm and the movie theater shut down for the day. So, <laughs> um, I didn't get to see it. Uh, Lewis, are, are you a Vertigo fan? Yeah, I mean, I've only seen it, like, twice, I think, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's a really good movie. Have you seen Psycho? I have seen Psycho, yes. Because that's what I was thinking of when you were talking about your mother and Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Um, Psycho. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Vertigo. It's a, it's a really good movie. Unlike Psycho, it's a very colorful movie. It's kind of like the allure is, like, you get all the... Like, the thing I associate, and I think a lot of people, is, like, the green... Like, there's, like, this green fog, which I think is the name of a documentary about Vertigo. Hmm. You get these wonderful colors. Jimmy Stewart is great. He plays a cop named Scotty. That's, like, his nickname. And, like, after an incident where he was, like, chasing a criminal, he gets, like, diagnosed with Vertigo. And then he gets drawn into, like, this plot where he has to, like, follow a woman around. And then he ends up falling in love with her. And then something happens to this woman. But then it seems like the thing that he thought happened to this woman didn't happen. And then that's where things really start to get kooky. But uh, yeah, it's like this mystery. It's kind of Lynchian, I would say, much like, you know, you could say this is like a 20th century version of Mulholland Drive, um, where you get drawn in. Hitchcock is like, you know, masterful director. He's been doing it for like 30 years at this point when he made this movie. This is, oh, this is before Psycho, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah it's just a great movie um, lots of color I, it's hard for me to talk about it because it's like a mystery I don't want to like just spoil it mm-hmm. and also because it's been so long since I've watched it but um, I would recommend it I had the thing is like when this movie topped Citizen Kane 10 years ago I didn't really like think much of it and I, I, did, I didn't think much of it now 
because it was like always like right behind you know it was in the top 10 yeah commonly cited as a great film so it wasn't like a radical reinvention of the sight and sound list unlike the next entry which we'll get to um but i highly recommend it i should really watch more hitchcock i've only seen like this and psycho i think Hmm. and i've seen high anxiety by mel brooks which (laughs) doesn't count but um i should really watch more hitchcock have you uh, you never seen rear window oh yes i have seen rear window yeah i mean i think that i've only seen psycho rear window dial m for murder and then most of north by northwest um so I, 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 I have some work to do as well. But to, to what you said about being kind of like a modern day, or not modern day, like a 20th century Mulholland Drive is like, that's what always jumps out to me about Psycho is like the Janet Lee murder sequence, spoiler alert for, a, you know, 60 year old movie that has like a very iconic murder scene. Like the whole like sequence afterwards where like her body is like kind of being like disposed of and all of that. Like to me, that is like, like a 20th century, like, well, I mean, Twin Peaks did come out in the 20th century. But it's like a 1960s version of Twin Peaks, it feels like, almost. Um, you know, I, I feel like Hitchcock, a lot of people, it's like, oh, it's just kind of, you know, he was like the intricate plot guy. But I think he was also, like, visually, I think he maybe doesn't get as much credit as um, he should. Um, anyway, so you, you mentioned the number one spot. We, we have mentioned it already. Um, this is a movie that you and I had never heard of until it made this um ranking right i i believe um so it is uh jean dealman 23 quai du commerce 1080 bruxelles please excuse my french i don't speak french uh directed by chantal ackerman 1975 um uh, my understanding is that this is like a 200 plus minute movie about like the life of a belgian housewife and it is very slow and people have called it boring but not bad um and this, I think, shook up a lot of stuff just because, as we said, like, this was not a movie that was... Um... Yeah, this isn't a movie that was on a lot of people's radars. Yeah. And for my money, I think part of that is, like, the title. I feel like the title yes. is very unmemorable. Yes. So even though it was on the list, you know, years previously, it wasn't, like... And like I said, you and I are like fans of like lists and stuff like the AFI Top 100. Obviously, this wasn't going to be on it because it's a French film. Mm-hmm. But like there's like the Empire, greatest 500 greatest movies of all time. Um, that's probably like 10 years old now, though, too. But, you know, we we read these lists, but it's like I've never like heard anyone talk about like this film in like conversation. No one's like, oh, you know, like this film, it's like a new version of John Dealman or, right, you know, yeah. Star Wars. It blew John Dealman out of the water. <laughs> it wasn't like... I've read like histories of film and stuff. It's like going through and it's like, this wasn't just never on the radar. I just never really stuck in my mind. It's never to put it simply. I mean, there are just like no memes from this movie. (laughs) Right. It's true. Yeah. Like, like the Simpsons is not making Jean Dielman references. Right. As far as I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we haven't seen it. So how do we know? Um, yeah, like, you know, it seems like it was always held in, in high esteem, but for whatever reason in the past couple of years has gotten more and more popular. It, I don't think it was, I think... It, well, like, I know it, it has to do with Chantal Ackerman passing away, but mm, that was eight years ago now. So it's yeah. just it's just really strange and fascinating 
And I don't want to say I'm feeling like I'm being gaslit here, but I feel like I'm being gaslit here. The way this movie is just like Rose and everyone's talking about it, like, oh yeah, Jean Dielman. You know, you don't know Jean Dielman? <laughs> everyone's seen it. <laughs> it's like, I've never, none of these directors or anyone is talking about the work of Chantal Ackerman or, or Jean Dielman specifically. So it's just like, huh? Yeah. Well, oh, go on. It just, it feels shocking. So like the, the that reaction I don't think it's like too surprising to be like I haven't heard of this movie. From what I heard of, it sounds like a very kind of niche movie, so it's a bit shocking for it to be claimed as the greatest film of all time. Yeah, even like looking at like its Wikipedia page, like and people like like it, but it's like Gus Van Sant said it was like a like an influence for his movies Jerry and Elephant. I guess Todd Haynes and Celine Jerry. <laughs> Todd Haynes and Celine Skiama like it, like and. But I don't think it was on the same sound list, to your point, until 2012, um, when it was ranked 35th. And they made this massive jump. Like you said, Vertigo was always hanging around Citizen Kane. And now it's made this massive jump to number one. And I was thinking, like, what would, like, the equivalent be, like, for music? Because, you know, like, I, I consider myself, like, a music critic, I guess. Um, and I read a lot of, you know, music lists. And it's like, the thing is, like, I can't even conceptualize what an equivalent would be for music. Because it would be an album I have never heard of being called the greatest album of all time, which is possible. I haven't heard of every album ever made, but just the kind of album that would be named the greatest album of all time would be something, or at least by an artist that I had heard of before, right? Would it be like if the Chicago Transit Authority jumped to number one? <laughs> just because I'm thinking of like the same time period roughly as Jean Dielman. I mean, what I think it would be, it would be more if like um, 75, like it, it would be more if like, um like the plastic ono band yeah but like things like they're they're too famous like be more like if um rodriguez like searching yeah for yes I, I think that's a better yeah like rodriguez like you know this artist who like was very much a niche artist who all of a sudden got more famous afterwards was number one like rodriguez like maybe death like you know the band death that has a documentary band called death like if that was number one um it'd be kind of like that um it's just just very hard to kind of like wrap my head around um well it's tough for us to name examples because like we're trying to come up with like a niche thing yeah that very few people have heard of it, it, it's like describing a color that doesn't exist right it's yeah. like um but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess I'll watch it now. Um, well, do you think it, maybe it's like you should not watch it because of backlash? <laughs> no, I, I want to understand it, you know. I want I want to get the hype. Um, I want to see why. But it's just so weird when you think about it, too, because this isn't even like, as far what well, I mean, Paul Schrader thinks this is what happened. But as far as we know, like, this wasn't just like the magazine saying, like, this is going to be the number one movie. It was all these critics from across the world putting it on their individual lists and then it getting all the way to number one. Um, it just it feels like a massive kind of like upset in a way. Yeah, which is why I want confirmation that the people have actually seen this movie. Because <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't looked into this too deeply, of like whose ballots are actually whose. Mm -hmm. And this is why it's interesting to compare this list with like the director's list where they just limit the ballots to the directors where 2001 actually managed to claim the top spot so like i want to know if maybe this is like a you know social media influencer thing it's like oh i know jean dealman i'll write that 
the whole thing. I wonder if it was if one of the requirements is that you have to write the whole title because that might actually be an argument (laughs) against me that people have to remember the whole title but you know it's just like i i don't know i want i just want to know it's just (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh jean dealman actually it was tied for number four on the director's list with tokyo story um but yeah a a very very curious uh, but like i see like i'm just like Number four, I can deal with. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, uh, I guess maybe was the vote split? Maybe I guess the other top ten. That could be, that could be. And I feel like there had to be some constraints who are going to be like, well, I'm not going to put Citizen Kane on here because everybody else is going to have Citizen Kane, right? But I mean, like, it's not hard to believe that there was a push maybe to include a film directed by a woman, right? No, no, I, I agree. And, like, it is, I think it's considered, like, a feminist film. And so I, I think you're right. There is definitely, like, a sense of, like, wanting to... Because, you know, like, uh, film and, like, specifically film directors has been, like, kind of, um, you know, a big discussion point is just kind of how the work of female directors has sometimes been ignored and how there weren't yeah. as many female directors in the early days of film. Well, um, I mean, there were, yeah, but right, it's not right. many. Do women even want to direct? Don't they like cooking and cleaning? <laughs> I mean, from what but I asked like, about John Dielman, that's what happens on a lot of it. <laughs> but like, if um, if I woke up and it was like Cleo from five to seven mm-hmm. was number one instead of John Dielman, like I would maybe be, I don't know if I upset is the right word. I'd be maybe a bit confused. Like, oh, that's interesting that it's suddenly at number one. But I mean, like, I've seen it. So it's much more like a film. It's not as experimental as jean dealman it's just basically following a woman around for two hours from five to seven as the title indicates as she awaits the results of like maybe she has cancer or whatnot and she's just like watching walking around france in like real time even though the movie's only 90 minutes long um so that that is a more conventional film made in the french new wave so i i could understand that being number one and it's directed by a woman at an earlier time point than so I'm just confused. Like Chantal Ackerman is not a director I'm super familiar with. From what I heard, a lot of people consider, uh, what's that other film she did? News from Home. People consider News from Home a better film than John Dealman. So I just feel like it's very confusing all around to say this is the number one greatest film of all time. Yeah. Well, we now have the chance with our next segment here to, uh, you know, we've been reacting to other people's rankings, sometimes befuddled by them, as you can hear. Uh, but we, we now have the chance to, 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 to dip our own oar into the stream, as they say, to, uh, give our own opinions about what should and maybe should not be on the list. Um, we're going to do like we do with the TV's list, uh, suggest three movies that should be added to this list and because we're adding one, we will also suggest three to take off to make room for the movie we have chosen. Uh, so, Lewis, I will let you go first uh, with your with your choices. Oh gosh. <laughs> um. Now I have to take away something. Mm-hmm. If you'd like me to go first, instead I can go first. Yeah, you can go first. Okay. So the a, a big a big thing people pointed out about this list is 
you know, is supposedly a list of the 100 greatest movies of all time, but it does not include one of the most popular and successful directors of all time, I'm thinking, namely, of Steven Spielberg. There is no Spielberg movie on this list, and I think that is an oversight. Now, I was not expecting something like Jurassic Park or E.T. or, thank goodness, Ready Player One to be on this list, um, but I do think there is a case to be made that Jaws belongs on the list of the 100 greatest movies of all time. Uh, not only did it basically invent the summer blockbuster and kind of reshape the way people think about marketing movies and 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 what, what kind of movies can be successful at the box office and things like that. It's also just, just a really, 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 really well-made film about, you know, a, a shark terrorizing um, a stand-in for Martha's Vineyard, I guess. And um, even though it's based on shark attacks that happened in the Jersey Shore, I will let you know. Um, just, just really great uh, stuff um you know really great special effects really innovative in that regard i mean like it's a fairly long movie but it really doesn't feel that long um you know iconic just like the, the score and 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 some of the shots and all of that just part of like the general like cultural lexicon now and just something i think really deserves to be on the list and taking off i mentioned it before this is a good movie i like this movie um but I'm going to take off Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is at number 30 currently. Um, a good movie. I don't know that it really does anything new the way that Jaws did. And I, in like maybe 10 years, you could talk me into it if it ends up having like a longer impact than I expected. Um, but for now, it, Jaws will be taking its place. Hmm. Uh... So I got to pick a film <laughs> and then replace it with another film. Hmm. It's <laughs> not something like super tasteless. Uh, it'd be funny, but I don't know. This is a safe space, Lewis. So, you know. All right. I'm going to go for it then. So um, I see a number... 27 we have cloud landsman's Shoah, which is a eight-hour documentary about the holocaust uh filmed in 1985 so you know there's lots of um talking heads and talking about how the germans you know uh, were occupying poland and they led to the systematic execution of the jewish people there as well as many others that the fourth third reich was not a fan of and i was thinking maybe we could sw swap this out with um Robert Zemeckis's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, <laughs> okay, which is a great film honoring the you know golden age of animation, special effects incorporating live action and animation seamlessly into a wonderful film. Really captures what's so great about big budget Hollywood filmmaking. Um, extraordinarily successful at the box office unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you look at it there's no sequel it's a singular standalone film beloved steven spielberg himself was actually behind the scenes of it mike so you know there's quality for you it would add to your your credence that steven spielberg's the greatest filmmaker of all time if we include what? something he produced on <laughs> i didn't quite say that but go on <laughs> but i'm just saying he, he's markedly absent from the current list so right, right. we're including something that he's a part of Film I, I dearly love. Well, put it at a in place of a Showa. Okay, um, that's you know 
that that that's fine <laughs> um yeah, you you did write a review of Who Censored Roger Rabbit, the book that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is based off of for the Post Rider. Um, I I've I've actually never seen that movie all the way through. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, but yes, a celebration of animation, as you said. Um, so my next one will be a movie I'm actually pretty surprised is not on here. Just I think based on its reputation. Um, it is a more recent movie from 2007, and it's from another filmmaker who is not on this list at all. Um, I'm thinking of ta- Paul Thomas Anderson and his, I would say, masterpiece, There Will Be Blood, um, loosely based on, on, on a book about a book called Oil by Sinclair Lewis. Um, this, uh, Up- Upton, Upton Sinclair. Sinclair. Excuse me, I always get them confused. Upton Sinclair, um, the guy who ran for governor in Mank. Um <laughs> uh about you know uh, an oil man named um daniel plainview who finds uh, sort of this he, he adopts basically this child um from a, a dead oil worker and um about his his attempts to find oil and also kind of basically buy up the land in a town called new boston he clashes with a preacher there to me it is this kind of like ultimate distillation of you know you think of the things that founded America, right? You have commerce that founded Jamestown and the Virginia colony, and you have religion that founded Plymouth and the Massachusetts Bay colony, and they kind of converge in the West in this film and uh, creates this this conflict. I mean, like, they're literally just, like, the imagery of them basically just borrowing into hell and fire coming out. Really powerful stuff. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, one of the all-time great film performances of all time in this. Um, Paul Dano actually quite good in this as well. Um, you know, I drink your milkshake, amazing scene. Uh, can't say enough about There Will Be Blood. And so I am going to pick another recent film to take out. And this is mostly just because, as I mentioned, like I, I haven't seen like a ton of movies on this list. So I had to make some tough choices. Um, I'm going to take off Parasite from this list. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. Again, a good movie. I like this movie. My thing is, though, I look at the more recent movies on this list and I think of, like, Get Out, which I think, like, like you think about Get Out and, like, how many kind of, like, imitators that movie spawned. Um, and it's kind of ridiculous, right? So I think very important, outside just being good, important from that regard. Moonlight, I think, also kind of set a little bit of a template for, um, I would say, like, prestige-minded indie films in the kind of, like, sort of, like, quiet way it's kind of, like, you know, it, it, it moves about. Um, so I think that makes sense to have it on here too. But Parasite, again, a great movie. I don't really feel like it does a whole lot new outside of just being like a very good movie. Um, so I'm going to swap it with There Will Be Blood. Um, yeah, so I guess going back to the well of like what directors are missing from the list. I saw people talking about this and I saw they, they mentioned Spielberg and you know Terrence Malick. David Fincher is not on the list. It made me laugh. Someone was like, I'm shocked that nothing by George Lucas is on the list. <laughs> like, really? <laughs> He's only directed, like, one great movie. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. Depends, I think. But, I mean, I, like, I he only directed too, directed one of the Star Wars original trilogy films. Oh, that's films a good point. That's a good point. Zero of the Indiana Jones films, if that's that's what you're thinking of, including. Right. So. Fair enough. Um, he's not exactly a great director. No. Let's say that. But another director who has no films included 
is Terry Gilliam, mm. famously of Monty Python, but also has a separate uh, director. Yeah, also has a separate career as a film director. Infamously has trouble getting his films made or financed, however you want to call that. And so it's a miracle that we have as many films from him as we do. So there are many, many films of his that I think are quite good, worthy of inclusion on this list. I mean, you could put in a uh, favorite of mine, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Um, Time Bandits is another good one. Uh, Fisher King with uh, Robin Williams. But I'll, I'll say Brazil from 1985. Very well made uh, dystopian movie. Kind of a 1984 analog released in 1985. Um, infamously had trouble when it was released in the theater. They demanded the ending to be a happy ending <laughs> instead of the depressing ending that Terry Gilliam wanted. Fortunately, it is available for all of us to see through places like the Criterion Collection. And now, what will I swap it out with? Um, I'll swap it out with a film that I don't care for very much and haven't really watched all of it because I turned it off. I don't really care much for Apocalypse Now, mm. 1979, so I'll, I'll swap it out there. Um, I've read Hearts of, Heart of Darkness by uh, Joseph Conrad. I think it's an interesting short story. Apocalypse Now is not a short story. It's a very long <laughs> film um, where it transplants the action from Congo in the 1890s to Vietnam in the 1970s. Or maybe the 60s. I don't, it transplants it to Vietnam in the 70s. Martin Sheen plays the character, and we basically follow him as he goes further and further into the heart of darkness to find Colonel Kurtz, played by Marlon Brando. Now, this is... I've seen more parodies of this movie than I've actually sampled of the original work itself. So it might not be fair for me to say, but I didn't find it as engaging as a lot of other people said. It famously won the Palme d'Or in a Best Picture at the Academy Awards that year, Francis Ford Coppola famously like went insane trying to make it over a very difficult and long production history. So I certainly don't hold any ill will against him for that, but I will say that the film is not for me compared to others that Francis Ford has made. So I'll swap it out with Terry Gilliam's Brazil, an underseen, underappreciated movie that I think is uh, quite good. Yeah. He's already on the list too, Coppola, with uh, Godfather. Actually, Apocalypse Now did not win Best Picture. It lost to Kramer versus Kramer. Um, uh, Michael Richards in the famous dual role in that film. Um, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so Brazil... Mike, I'm, Mike, yes. you should write for Mad Magazine. That's what you should do. <laughs> I should. And this joke will kill in 1978. <laughs> Actually, no, it wouldn't make any sense. Michael Richards wasn't famous then. And Seinfeld didn't exist. Um, there, there's really no... <laughs> I think there's really no sweet spot for that joke. Um, so I think that I, I haven't seen Brazil, um, but everyone tells me it's great. Um, kind of, I, my understanding is like, it's a dark comedy. Um, I think that's a thing with whenever you try to like quantify the best, um, movies like comedy, I think a lot of times does get maybe like, um, the, the short stick a little bit just cause people think of like important movies, which tend to be very serious and things like that. So I am going to add a comedy to the list. Uh, Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles um probably my favorite mel brooks movie um i think one of my favorite movies period um obviously his his spoof and send-up of of the western genre um starring uh gene wilder well gene wilder's really in a supporting role 
Um, Cleavon Little. Yeah, Cleavon Little is really the the lead of a um, a, a a a black prisoner who who is sent to be the sheriff of this town that the the, the nefarious governor um, and and his assistant want to turn into a. Um, they want to develop it, right? I they build a railroad through it. I think. I actually don't remember now, because um, that's not really an important part of the movie. <laughs> um, but you love this film. I do. I love it. But the, you know, the plot <laughs> is not really the point for me. The point is like the jokes and the gags and things like that. Like that. And the more like interesting part is, is Cleveland Little going to this town. They reject him because he's black, but he builds this friendship with Gene Wilder, who's like this old old west gunfighter, and they um, they protect the town from. The, the, the governor's plans um really really funny i mean like and also you know the big kind of cliche with movies like blazing styles and a lot of mel brooks movies is like oh you can't you couldn't make this movie today because it's so offensive and da, 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 da. and like yeah there'd be a lot of stupid people who would think this is offensive but like this is like like very much a movie about like how racism is bad like this is not like a pro-racist movie um and uh the good guys win in the end um so yeah, I just just like I said, like to me, just like like a comedy masterpiece and uh, a, a great flick. And I would actually replace this is like so kind of a this might be a little controversial, but I would actually take out uh, Rear Window from this list. Um, Hitchcock already has Vertigo and Psycho on this list. Um, like I said, I haven't seen Vertigo. I think Psycho is better than Rear Window. I like Rear Window. I actually think the rewatch level is a little low because it is so static in a way because this is just about jimmy stewart in his balcony um you know watching people out his window and that can maybe be like a little tedious if you watch like if, if your viewings are like i think too too close together um i just think kishcock has done better work elsewhere not a bad movie by any means go see it if you haven't seen it but uh like i said hitchcock has already gotten his flowers so we're gonna put uh blazing saddles in there instead hmm interesting yes i i do like Mel Brooks as well. I'm, I admit I'm not as partial to Blazing Saddles as many others. I've only seen it once, really, maybe twice, if you count like a half watch. Um, I, I'm more partial to History of the World Part 1 myself. But, uh, you know, I, I love Mel Brooks. He's great. Mm-hmm. He's still with us. I watched, I, I went to a uh, screening of uh, his, his seminal work, his film that has so much to say, Spaceballs. <laughs> Uh, absolutely astounding film lampooning the star wars <laughs> series of films and uh he was mel brooks was there in attendance afterwards to do q a so that was nice to see the maestro himself in person mm-hmm. delivered some wonderful his, he had advice it's like mel how do you live so long and he's like his advice don't die <laughs> and uh he's he's still doing it yeah still <laughs> um yeah, so Mel Brooks is great. Another uh, director that I've seen in person just a, a few weeks ago, I saw Mr. Werner Herzog showing one of his uh, newest films. Um, he's doing like two a year now. It's crazy. Um, but uh, I saw him, and he's, I believe he has no films on the list, the sight and sound list, which is a crime, given that he's one of the leading figures of the German new wave of cinema. I think he was the first, really when he released signs of life in 1968 and he's he's still with us so he's like the last person still alive still making movies and there are many films you could say for 
Werner that are like really good and deserve inclusion on this list. Famously, you wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if something like a Gear, The Wrath of God, or Fitzcarraldo was on the list. But I'm gonna go with a dark horse favorite and I'd say the Enigma of Casper Hauser, which I think is a really interesting movie that I I really enjoyed quite a lot, and I think it would be a worthy inclusion on the list. And which film will I replace it with? That is the question. Let's see. How what films directed by women can I strike <laughs> off the list? Uh, I don't know. I could just say number forty six. Put it put it in there. Take off the Battle of Algiers, which is a film I have seen and I found it um, really boring. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's my academic take on the Battle of Algiers. Directed by Gilo Pontecorvo. Do you remember um, when we had to watch a Pontecorvo movie in our comparative politics class? Oh, and, Burn? Yes, and half the class fell asleep during it because it was finals week and we were all tired. <laughs> yeah, I, I skipped I skipped that class and watched oh. it on Netflix, I think it was. Okay. Uh, B- Burn's cool. I like Burn. Yeah, I, I remember you saying you liked it. I, I actually have not. Um, I haven't come back to watch it. Um, you know, d- does the whole European thing where they, or it's really just Italian thing where they, they, they dub the vote, the, the dialogue. I find it distracting anyway. Um, so those are our picks. Um, any like honorable mentions you had? Like films that are on the list that I think are really good. Well, that or, um, films that you thought about adding, but didn't get to add. I mean, I like Sergio Leone. Mm-hmm. He has Once Upon a Time in the West, way down in like the ninety fifth spot. Um, I like I like Once Upon a Time in the West. I think The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is great. Maybe just a little bit better. And Once Upon a Time in America is a masterpiece. Like uh, Jean Dielman, it's a two hundred plus minute movie, and now with like the extended footage they added in the last ten years, it's like a two hundred and sixty plus minute movie. Jeez. But it's great. Robert De Niro's in it. James Woods playing a bad guy, believe it or not. He's in it. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the last movie Leon made, because it was a disaster, because believe it or not, when you cut a movie meant to be 260 plus minutes down down to 140 minutes, it kind of loses something. And it bombed. Uh, that's great. Um, Jacques Tati. Great films. He has probably his best film playtime at the 23rd spot you know can't argue with that there's uh mr hulo's holiday which is really great bit of a chaplain-esque take with his famous mr hulo character um not nearly as like meaningful or innovative technically i would suppose as playtime but it's quite good there's mon uncle as well that he also made um David Lynch has Blue Velvet on the list as well as Mulholland Drive, but he also has uh, <laughs> Eraserhead and The Elephant Man, which I, I hadn't seen The Elephant Man until recently. It's really good. But, you know, Eraserhead, you know, landmark independent film. George Lucas saw it. Mel Brooks produced it. <laughs> George Lucas saw it and was like, I want to get this guy to direct Return of the Jedi. <laughs> um,. Do you have any reactions to any of those, Mike? Uh, the ones you picked? Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. Also, like a racer head in blue velvet. Um, haven't I've the only Sergio Leone movie I've seen actually is Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Um, and I've seen No Jacques Tati. So, did you not like Good, Bad, and the Ugly? No, I love it. Was, it's great. Oh, I just uh, I just haven't made my way to the other. But you know, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is incredible. Um, you know, what's his name? Um, Clint Eastwood. Well, yes, he's also he's very good in it. Eli Wallach also he's in it. Um, oh, what's his name? Sergio Leone, and then who's the composer? Ennio Morricone. Ennio Morricone. Obviously, like a score like again, that's probably more like people have probably seen more parodies of like the score and of that movie in general, and they've seen the movie. Um, but definitely encourage you to go seek it out. Um, for me, I mean, we've kind of talked about you know a lot of what I've seen and, and what I've enjoyed already. Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder, number seventy-eight. Um, really really great film um billy Wilder. he also has the apartment on this list which is also quite good um a face in the crowd a very uh i don't know if maybe maybe it should be on this list but like a very prescient movie as far as its commentary on the media and politics uh starring an evil andy griffith in in the lead role um Casablanca's on here, good. I talked about that. It. It's better than the other evil Andy Griffith movie, uh, Spy Hard, with <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. I can't say I've ever seen that. Um, uh, Casablanca, the third band, what can you say? Uh, Scorsese is on here for Goodfellas and Taxi Driver. I think there's an argument for like Raging Bull um, to be on here as well. Um, what else we got going on? Blade Runner, Ridley Scott sci-fi classic um are you a big fan of blade runner i've only seen it once and i enjoyed it mm. <laughs> uh some like it hot that's the other billy Wilder film on the list uh really really i mean like i watched i watched that all the way through the for the first time like a couple months ago incredible how much it holds up i mean considering what it's about where it's about women men pretending to be women like you would be worried that like it's maybe kind of dated but it it's, it's not like it's and it's it's like very like just naturally funny. Um, the the one thing I like I'm really shocked about is there's no there's no Coen Brothers movie on this list. Like that seems like a pretty big oversight. Which one would you put on? I mean, I guess like maybe first in line is like and this is kind of cliche answer is No Country for Old Men. Um, but I think like Fargo and Barton Fink are like two of the others that I think would be. Yeah, that's the thing is that. You, if you put like No Country for Old Men or like Miller's Crossing, are they like truly Coen Brothersy? Yeah, like, very serious-minded films. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the issue. Um, so you know, I, I would settle for Fargo or Barton Fink. Um, and then uh, you know, we kind of mentioned it before, but I, I think Godzilla merits consideration. I don't know that I would ultimately put it on the list. But um, the original Godzilla, really Gojira, we should call it, because there's, like, the American cut of Godzilla, which inserts Raymond Burr make with all this commentary. It's not as good. Raymond Burr playing Steve Martin. Yes, yes, the reporter Steve Martin. But uh, Gojira, a very, like, you know, people think of Godzilla as kind of, like, campy and silly in, like, the 60s and things like that. Um, a very grim movie. Um, you can, like, the, the trauma of, like, you know, the atomic bombings just radiates no pun intended off the screen um almost reminds me more of like uh, i think it's episode eight of like twin peaks the return than it does like other godzilla movies like the score is just like composed like 
parts of it like the device like just like like really downbeat piano like the destruction scenes are not played as like bombast they're played as like very like mournfully um it's funny that you mentioned that the music because twin peaks part eight it's not like original score it's like the famous i don't thernity for like the victims of hiroshima yeah is like the music yeah yeah i I know yeah it's um yes you're um i forget exactly what it's called but yeah it, it is about the victims of hiroshima um and i mean you know that uh so it fits. Yeah. I, did they use that in Gajira? <laughs> um, no, they don't, because I don't know that that actually existed yet. Um, uh, let's, let's... I've only seen uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. I haven't seen the original uncut Gojira, which yeah, is it, in the Criterion Collection. It is, and rightfully so. You know, I think, like, um, it... Uh, like from from a story perspective you know it, it's a little um it's 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 just kind of like there there's some issues there i think it's just not like always like very compelling um but from like a technical perspective like i said like thematically i think is it's very notable um yeah threnity for up to the victims of hiroshima from 1961 so little after godzilla um was it in Godzilla vs. Mecha Godzilla? <laughs> to my knowledge, no. <laughs> um, maybe Godzilla vs. Megalon, though. Um, all right, I think that does it for our discussion of, of the sight and sound lists. Um, any anything else you want to add, Lewis? Uh, we should make our own list. <laughs> yeah, we should. With blackjack and ochres. <laughs> you know what? Forget the list. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the Pony Express. You can find this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. And when you do find it, please like, rate, and subscribe. Please let us know what you think about the podcast at contactthepostwriter.com. And you can find me, Mike Levito, on Twitter at mlevito and on Letterboxd at Ameramike. And you can find me, Lewis Ryan, on Twitter as well at, at the Lewis Ryan. And that, this has been our discussion of Sight and Sound. We hope you enjoyed it. Um... We don't care if you agreed with or disagree with us. We just hope you thought we were interesting. Um, So we'll see you next time here on the Pony Express.